Romans chapter 8. Right now I want to read Romans 8, 14 through 23. Ten verses. As I do, I want you to notice each time. Christians are somehow referred to as God's children. Romans 8.14 For all who are led by the Spirit of God are, there it is, sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. As sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Now, right here, folks. Some of your Bibles say revealed to us. Some of your Bibles say revealed in us. And the reason that is because the word that is actually used here kind of has the idea of both. In fact, one translation has in store for us. It's like a glory that reaches out and includes us. It's a glory that is not only outside, but inside as well. It's an encompassing glory. So if you say revealed to us, it's almost as though it's coming to us from the outside. In us, it's like it's coming out of us from inside. But it's really a combination of both. And that's why either translation works, but if you can think of it as a glory that is in store for the children of God, both to them and out of them, within them, something that actually reaches out and envelops them. For the creation, verse 19, waits with eager longing for the revealing of what? Of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I want you to notice two things about this portion of Scripture just by way of introduction this morning before we even get into the heart of the message. First is this. The theme of these verses is sonship. There's absolutely no mistaking that. There are, and think about this, there are few themes in the Bible that are as precious as the reality that sinners are adopted by God 
into the family of God and are made sons and daughters of God. And why is it so important for Paul to stress this? Think about this. It's got everything to do with the security of the believer. Listen, this is a guarantee that Christians will persevere to the end. If believers are sons, that is a permanent relationship. Think think with me. A man may divorce his wife so that she's not a wife anymore. An employer might fire an employee so that that relationship doesn't exist anymore. Right? But folks... A father can never stop being a father to his son. Never. He may say he disowns him, but he is his father still. So, it's not changeable. The father-son relationship is irreversible. It is unchangeable. It is certain. And Paul's whole point here is this. If God makes me His Son, which is proven by the fact that I bear the Spirit and given evidences of being a son, then my relationship with God is irrevocable. It is sealed in heaven. It is certain. And there is absolute certainty of my final and complete an entire salvation. So the first thing to notice is Paul's emphasis on sonship. Because there is an emphasis in that of security. Little children, you are secure. Second is this. Notice verse 23. Let your eyes go down there. Search... Right there in the middle of that verse, you will see the phrase, first fruits of the Spirit. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now notice what Paul does not say. He does not say that we are the first fruits of the Spirit. There are other places where there's talk like that. But that's not what he's saying here. What he says right here is, we are. Have the first fruits of the Spirit and are waiting eagerly for the redemption of the body. Now you think with me. Do you see the word have? We who have the first fruits. That means whatever first fruits are, whatever they are, sons of God have them already. They're not something to be had in the future. We have them now. That implies that there are things now possessed, folks. Think with me further. If there are first fruits, that implies what? That there are also second and third There are last fruits. There are final fruits. Or we might even say it this way. There are future fruits. Right? Wouldn't that be the idea behind such a thing? Okay, so what's the big deal? 
What does that have to do with you? What does that have to do with me? Everything. You see. What Paul is spelling out for us here is that these future blessings, these future fruits that are to be had, what are they? Things like the redemption of the body. That we saw right there in verse 23. Or glorification. If you look at verse 17, you see that. Or the glory that is in store for us. Or in us. Or revealed to us from verse 18. The revealing of the sons of God from verse 19. The freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 21. Oh, folks. This is good stuff. Now all of this is what the Spirit of God is going to do. In the future. They are the future fruits of the Spirit. All who are the ones that Paul says, well, let me ask you this. I won't tell you. I'll ask you this. Who are the ones that are waiting, that Paul says here, wait eagerly for these things? Folks, it's those who have the first fruits. What makes this so immensely important is that the first fruits of the Spirit are the very grounds of assurance that the future fruits are for certain going to be yours. You have to follow that. Paul is building his argument for the believer's assurance and security and confidence of final perseverance based on what is true about your life right now. So, for example, if I'm being led by the Spirit to kill sin right now, that is a first fruit that proves I'm a son of God. And if that first fruit of the Spirit belongs to me, then I'm guaranteed that I will in the future experience the glory that is to be revealed. I will experience the bestowal of an inheritance. I will receive the redemption of my body. I will know the fullness of the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Do you see the significance of this? Many, now listen, there are some here likely in this very category. Many hope for the future fruits. Like glorification, the inheritance of God, the redemption of the body. They hope for all that will one day be realized by the children of God. And yet, they do not possess the first fruit experiences that are common to all God's children. Right here, in this life, right now. Do you see that you must have the one if you would have the other? So I say all this, the reason I say all this, we're going to dive right now into Romans 8.15 this morning, and I want you aware beforehand that what we are looking at is the glory of sonship, and that sonship and all its future blessings are only true if you have the first fruit of the Spirit that is described right in this very verse. And just a quick thought before we actually dive into this verse. When Paul Washer's wife came under conviction out there under that tent several years back, she realized she was lost when 
she realized the biblical test of Christianity, the test of the first fruits of the Spirit, are not like a high school exam where you can get a 75% grade or an 80% grade or a 60% grade. What we have in the Bible is a true and false exam. And there's only one question. And you are either, either right or you are wrong. You're either in or out. You either pass or you fail. You are a child's God or you are not. You either get a 100% or you get a zero. It's that simple. Folks, this really matters. This is real. This is about you, about your life. This is not so much about... Now listen. This is not so much about what you believe as much as it is about what you experience Can you identify with the experience that we are about to look at in verse 15? You say, brother, it sounds like you're trying to make Christianity into an experiential thing. And I'm saying exactly that. There are a lot of people with a lot of head knowledge and a lot of facts and a lot of theology that don't know the experiences of the first fruits of the Spirit. Christianity is an experiential religion. When the Spirit of God is unleashed in a person's life, they experience things. And that's what's being said here. Paul is not going through a list of theological check marks that you have to give off. Doctrine is important. What you believe is critical. But I'm telling you this, there's more than just that to real Christianity. And that's what he's hitting on right here. So, here we are. Romans 8.15 For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now first, I believe it's so important that we, we look at the words and do somewhat of a word study as we move through this. Once again, just as I told you about 8.14, I want to open your eyes to the fact here in 8.15 the verse starts with the word for. Just the same way verse 14 does, just the same way verse 13 does. That just means that all these verses are connected. None of them stand alone. What is stated, now, now follow this, what is stated in the last half of verse 13 is supported and built upon in verse 14. What you have there at the end of 13, built upon in 14. What is stated in verse 14 is supported and more fully explained by verse 15. Paul is progressively building a picture for us of the Christian life that is really becoming fuller and more profound and more abundant with each new insight that he adds. And Paul means for us to really enjoy this. He's showing us the heart of Christianity. It is real, experiential. Things happen, glorious things, thrilling things. You can see it in Paul's words. 
I believe Paul was excited inside to write these things. I believe he was constantly excited about what Christianity was all about. The truths that he had to tell to God's people. This isn't dull, dusty, stale, empty theology. Folks, there, there really is an excellence in all this. A joy, a triumph. This is the life of recreation, of resurrection. This is the life of one who is born again. For all God's little ones, this is where we live. So let's follow the flow here. We pick up halfway through verse 13. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Then Paul answers the question, why will you live? It's not because you put to death the deeds of the body. There's another reason. So he continues with verse 14. Because all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So why do all people who by the Spirit put to death the sinful deeds of the body live? The answer is because all people who are led by the Spirit to put sin to death are children of God. They live not because they kill sin, but because they've been born again and are children of God. But then Paul wants to clarify another possible question that might arise. And the question is this. Why does the leading of the Spirit prove that a person is a son of God? So he proceeds to answer this by giving us verse 15. Because you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Look, the reason the leading of the spirit to kill sin proves that someone is a son of God is because the spirit that leads them to do so is the spirit of adoption. Let me sum it up for you all this way. You can only kill sin by the Spirit. And if you are killing sin by the Spirit, it is because the Spirit is leading you to kill that sin. And the Spirit that leads men to kill sin is the Spirit of adoption. Meaning that all who have it are adopted and must be sons. Whoever possesses the Spirit possesses the very guarantee that confirms that a legal transaction has been carried out by the Father on their behalf. Namely, adoption. And if you have been adopted, then you are a son of God. And if you are a son of God, then you have eternal life. That is the very way Paul is arguing here. But hold on. There's more here in verse 15 than just answering the question, why does the leading of the Spirit prove that I'm a son of God? Paul also answers the question, how does the Spirit lead? We know what He leads us to do. That's kill sinful deeds in my body. But how does He lead? It's not as a harsh taskmaster. Not as a slave driver. For you did not receive 
the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. The spirit does not drive God's children always holding punishments and threats over our heads. Now listen. This, this is critical. Christianity is not a slavishly fear-driven religion. Christianity is an affection-driven religion. It is a desire-driven religion. It is a love-driven religion. This comes right down to the heart of real Christianity. If you live your life trying to perform, trying to do things, and live up to a standard because you fear hell, or because you fear punishment, because you fear a master who is hard and overbearing, or because you fear losing your Christianity, folks, you've missed it. This is not the picture Paul paints for us here. Yes, the Spirit leads Christians to do what they once did not desire to do. But not the way a harsh master leads a slave to do what he does not want to do. Which is by filling him full of fear. This is not, this Christianity, it's not the fear of a slave towards a master, but rather it's the love of a son towards a father. An affection. That's what it's all about. What I'm saying to you here is this. The Spirit does press us. The Spirit does move us. He motivates us. He prompts us, believers, to godliness. But not by prompting with fear. By prompting an affection within us for the Father. An affection that we feel. That springs up within us. It's real. It's noticeable. It's experiential. This leading works on my feelings. It works on my desires, my affections, my emotions, my spirit, so that I'm compelled, not out of fear, but by longings for God, by a happiness in Him, an affection, an attachment, a closeness, an endearment that the Spirit floods my heart with. And do you know how it's identifiable? It's identifiable in God's children because of this. Wherever it is, it spills over. Do you see that there in the verse? The endearment of God's children towards their father spills over with the cry, Abba, Father. Now, now this is what's so important about this. It's not... Because they have theologically figured out 
it's correct and proper to do so. The Spirit-conceived cry, identified here in verse 15, is one that wells up from deep within. Abba! Father! Folks, what we need to ask ourselves here is this. Has the Spirit of God made my adoption so real, so heartfelt, so certain, that I find myself almost without thought diving into His arms, crying to Him, looking to Him, trusting Him, not after some theological deduction that logically shows me that it's correct and proper to cry to Him, but from a deep, Spirit-wrought response. Is there an impulse that just surges out of me? Or is there always doubt? Is there always a standoffishness? Is there always a hesitation and an uncertainty? I'm talking here about the first fruits of the Spirit in which our adoption is made real to us. Where it floods us with a sense of the love of the Father. Paul isn't talking here about just merely knowing the fact that God is your Father. But instinctively feeling it. Not just an idea or some hope of a future promise. This is the spirit of adoption making real to me and to you if you're a child of God the love of the Father has for us. This is the spirit of adoption taking the Father's love and applying it to our hearts in such a way that we know we are loved. So much so that cries of endearment flow out of us. Abba. Abba. Daddy. Don't you see, brethren, this isn't disrespectful. This isn't unholy. This isn't being presumptuously forward for the child of God. This is exactly the kind of religion the Father gives us through Jesus Christ. He purposely If you are a child of God, He purposely gave you a spirit that is a spirit of adoption. That's on purpose. In order that something within you might explode into joy and peace and obedience and sin killing and outcries of endearment towards Him. Don't ever forget, brethren, relationship is at the heart of Christianity. Not just escaping hell. Relationship with God. That's at the heart of this thing. If your view of God is that of an angry God who's always demanding, always cracking the whip. If you see Him as a hard master, impossible to appease. Or if you see Him as just the big man upstairs. Or some celestial old man like like Santa Claus. That's not the spirit of adoption. That's another spirit you have. What you... Listen. What you think about God and how you think towards Him spells out plainly whether you're His child or not. So Paul answers two questions with verse 15. The first, 
Why does the leading of the Spirit prove that a person is a son of God? The answer is because the Spirit is the Spirit of adoption. If you have the Spirit, you're adopted. Because He's the Spirit of adoption. God only gives the Spirit to those He has adopted. And the second question, how does the Spirit lead? And the answer is that He leads by stirring up affection for our Heavenly Father. Not by slavish fear. And I think it's essential right at this point that I stress what is not happening in this text. I've already hinted at it, but I want to be a bit more direct. This is not the picture of a person who approaches Christianity and the Spirit simply moves them to come to the Word of God and in a cold, calculating sense, they read and deduce a truth from the Scripture. What you have here is not that. Not logically concluding that we should see God as a Father. Not logically deducting that we should call Him Abba. Rather than just calling Him Lord or God or something else. This is not the idea of trying to stir up emotions and affections that you logically know should be true about you if you are a Christian. This is not that at all. What Paul is saying is that the spirit of adoption, wherever he's given, wherever he's operating, he literally ravishes the heart with the truth of God's fatherly affection for us. And that affection is shown nowhere more fully than in the cross of Jesus Christ and what He gave for us. The price He spent to redeem us. And in that, there is such expressions of the love that God has for His children that we are just swept away. And in response to that, there's an affection for Him. And it's spontaneous. It's responsive. It is the Spirit creating in you love and endearment for God so that you just burst forth with Abba. Father, listen to me. You go to your Bibles here and you open up to Romans 8.15 and you begin reading this, I want you to understand Romans 8.15 is not the picture of a person who infers logically the fatherhood of God. Rather, this is a picture of a person who is emotionally enjoying the fatherhood of God. The operation of the Spirit here is not to present us with a premise from which we deduce that we're children of God. Now look, Truth is good. Doctrine is great. We need to know it. We need to believe it. What, I'm not knocking that. What I'm telling you here is that what's being said in 8.15 is not that. It goes deeper. It goes beyond. What you see here is a picture of the unleashing of divine power by which it compels us to delight in being a child of God. This is something which essentially belongs to the realm of feeling 
and subjectivity and the emotions. This goes to a deeper level than simply the level of intellect. Look, if you don't believe me, just think about this. You never have to persuade yourself that you are in love. If you do, you're not. We don't deduce love on a merely intellectual level. As soon as you do that, you're in trouble. You don't have it. When it, when it goes to that level, you feel love emotionally. I know that as Reformed folks, we love to say, well, now love in the Scriptures, it's got to do with, you know... Don't boil love down to some simply truth-oriented, logical deduction. Because you know very well, love isn't that. Does God want your obedience without your heart? We looked at that in Sunday school. He doesn't want that. Does God want your obedience as you delight in Him? You better believe it. Does your wife want your love as you delight in her? Or, or simply... Well, I did this because I have to. The Scripture says I have to. Folks, this is something I'm talking about right here that a person is vividly conscious of. I'm not asking you whether you merely believe a fact about adoption. Of course we need to believe that and accept it with our minds. But I'm asking you whether you are conscious of it and feel it. If you don't feel and experience your Christianity with a hunger for God, longings after Him, affections for Him, if it is just a lot of theology to figure out and to debate, do away with it. It won't save you. It's not the worth the kind that is worth having. Now I want to be very clear here. We are on a mission. We've endeavored on a mission to identify the marks that are only true of God's children. And never true of anyone who is not a child of God. Here in verse 15, we have one of those sure proofs. One that is only true of sons of God. What is it? It's this. They've received the spirit of adoption. Nobody else receives that. But I can't see the spirit. You can't see the Spirit. You can't visibly see where He is and where He isn't. The way I know where He is is by the killing of sin. We've already looked at that. But the way I know where He is is because where He is, He produces this cry from the heart that you see right there at the end of the verse. That cry, in one form or another, must be true of every true child of God. You know how I know this? 
Because there's a parallel verse to Romans 8.15. And it's found over in the book of Galatians. And over there, it speaks in language that is even more certain than what you have right there in 8.15. You can turn there. I'm going to begin reading in Galatians 4.4. Listen to this. The real verse I want you to to focus in on is verse 6. But we'll start in Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now listen, here's where I really want you to focus. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, this is what it says. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because you are sons, that happens. Clearly, this is the Spirit stirring us up to cry this. I want you to see that. You know, when you read that, it says, He sends the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And you can say, well, is it me crying that or is it the Spirit crying that? Well, you guys understand, the Spirit of God never calls God Father. That's for sons. The Spirit of God is not a son. What, what that is, is it's the Spirit stirring our hearts to cry that way. When I say that this had better be true of you or you're not a child of God, I'm not making it up. This is what God's Word says. You can agree to write theology. You can listen to Christian music. You can read your Bible and affirm its basic teachings. But that isn't what I'm asking you about. The point of this is that if you are a son of God, God has sent the spirit of his son into your heart with the testimony of your sonship. Your heart responds with an irrepressible cry. A cry. Not a mere statement of faith, but a cry. Abba. Father, debate me if you will. Deny it if you can. But Galatians 4, 6 rings true, folks. If you're a son, because you are a son, God sent His Spirit to produce in you a heart cry of Abba, Father. And if this is foreign to you, I'm not suggesting that you try to stir it up. This is what the Spirit does do in God's children. Not what you force yourself to do because you read it and see that you should do it. This is another mark that you are truly and really God's child. Has the Spirit warmed your heart as well as enlightened your mind and thinking? Are you moved upon by the Spirit so that God is dear to you? Look, you know what this is all about? I'm lost. A Catholic. I believed in God. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
When you were lost, you believed in God. Christians are no longer people who simply believe in God. It's not just a mental exercise. As long as your Christianity is in your mind only, it lacks the very vital quality that really makes Christianity worth having. Yes, we want truth. We have to have truth. We have to have doctrine. We have to have knowledge. But we must have more than that. Do you have a familiarity with God where you can say, Papa, Dada, Abba, is there a serene joy and confidence and attraction to God in your religion? Our Lord, in the Garden of Gethsemane, He cries out, Abba, Father. These are the very words used by our Lord at the time of His great agony and desperation. Brethren, He wasn't theologically working out the eternal relationship between the first and second members of the Godhead. He was sweating great drops of blood. This is the cry He uttered. Abba, Father, Daddy, help me. This is the very cry the Apostle tells us comes out of the heart of the one who realizes that he has been truly adopted and made a son of God. There's security here. There's assurance here. There's certainty here. Look, I'm not asking you to say, do you go around all the time crying, Abba, you know, walking down the street. That's not what it's all about. It's, it's folks. It's as, as you're going along and all of a sudden there's a need. You find yourself saying, Father, I need this. It's, it's that when there's a need, when there's a fear, when there's something at hand, when there's, you're able, or, or a joy, you're able to just run into His presence. There's not all sorts of hesitation. There's not all sorts of questioning. There's just, Father, I'm here. I need You. Father, thank You for that. Abba. It's that familiarity. Look, folks. You notice in both Romans 8.15, Galatians 4.16, the word cry is used. This word doesn't just convey the idea of a whisper or something casual or with disinterest. This is a very strong word. It's a loud cry. It expresses deep emotion. It expresses fervency, earnestness. It's a strong word. Desperation. Abba. Father. This holds the idea that God is no longer at a distance. He's no longer a stranger. We're speaking to someone we know. He's not merely a God in whom we believe intellectually, theologically, theoretically, doctrinally. All this is possible to someone who is not a child of God at all. God is no longer a distant God as He was when we were driven by that spirit of fear and bondage. One of the greatest proofs of being a son is that God is no longer someone who is way out there at a distance. He becomes someone we know. Have you never read in Ephesians? 
We were afar off. But Jesus Christ brings us near. And notice what is cried. Abba! This is not some... Think with me, folks. This is not some overly dignified, highly solemn title of great propriety. This is the word daddy. It is familiar rather than highly dignified. Imagine, if you guys, imagine this. You get an invitation to go meet the President of the United States. You would probably give all sorts of attention to being proper, right etiquette, formal, using all the acceptable salutations. But if that president has a four-year-old son and he comes running out, he grabs his daddy around the leg and says, Daddy, I need you. No qualms, no hesitation, no embarrassment, no fears, just grabs his daddy, the president. Let me tell you something about that little illustration. The more I am a stranger to someone, the more formal I am. The more proper, the more ceremonial I will tend to be. When there is the familiarity and endearment and tenderness and closeness of a child to a parent, ceremony goes right out the window. Formalities give way. It's very interesting to notice that as men and women know less and less about a living spiritual experience with God, the more formal their worship becomes. Typically, formalized religion is another name for dead religion. When you get around people who pray the same all the time, it's just formal, it's dry, it's dead. They don't know about this. I mean, folks, have you heard the way some people pray? Oh God, we come into Your presence today. If your son came up to you and spoke to you that way, you'd probably say, what's the matter with you? I mean, you know, I remember somebody, I think it was A.T. Pearson. He was so excited. He was in the was in the same room with George Mueller. Mueller got down, began to pray, and he thought, wow, being able to pray with George Mueller. And you know, afterwards, he said it was nothing like I thought. He said he prayed to God like he knew him. He used just common language, just like he talked to anybody else. Listen, when you get to the place where you're talking to God with a tone in your voice that isn't the way you talk people. I mean, wake up. Come, come, come to the true religion. Start all over again. This thing, this thing needs to be started anew. Folks, Paul's whole agenda here is to emphasize exactly the opposite characteristic to all that formality. The man who has the spirit of adoption doesn't pray in a formal, mechanical, cold manner. His worship, his praying, will more resemble the spontaneity of a child who loves his father's presence and cries, Abba. 
And there's not only spontaneity in that, there's confidence. The little child has confidence. You know, it's, it's not like when there's a great need or a great fear, he has to sit there and analyze. He knows. He's compelled. There is, there is such an instinct within him that there is safety, there is security, there is help, and there is love found right there. Look, if you cannot relate to that, you're not a son of God. Look, I'm not saying this to club you. I don't want you pretending otherwise. Because you know what? If you're missing this, you're missing the sweetness of what true Christianity is all about. If this is foreign to you, let me tell you this. In John 1.12, it says this. It says, it's to, many, to as many as received Him, Jesus Christ, to as many as have believed on His name, the name of Jesus Christ, to them He gave the right to become children of God. If you receive Christ, you are adopted. Now listen, to receive Christ doesn't mean you say a prayer. To receive Christ means to receive Him as everything He is, as defined by Scripture. Not who you think He is, but who He really is, as defined in the Word of God. And this Christ said this, you cannot be my disciple unless you forsake all that you have. Listen, if you'll receive Christ, it will be only if you receive Him forsaking everything. It will only be if you receive Him repenting of all your sin and all your idols. That's how you receive Christ. It's got to be on His terms, not on ours. But if you'll receive Him on His terms, which means abandoning all your sin. And receive Him. That means lay hold on Him. You are adopted. It's to you He gives the right to be sons of God. And if you're a son, you have the spirit of adoption. And if you have the spirit of adoption, you will cry, Amen. You're dismissed.